G'day folks, Nick Muldoon here, exploring all things Easy Agile with you. Today I'm joined by Dom Price, Atlassian's Work Futurist. Dom tours the world, well, pre-COVID at least, and meets with companies from every industry to explore with them what the workplace of the future will look like. Great gig he's got. Today, however, we're going to focus our energy on agile transformations at scale and what that means with an increasingly remote workforce. What I was keen to, to, to touch on and what I was keen to explore, Dom, was, was really this evolution of thinking mm. at Atlassian. And, and I remember when we first uh, crossed paths, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I recall it was like late 2014, I think. Yep. And, and Scrum Australia was on at the time. And, yep. um, and you're, at, you know, you're at the George Street offices above Westpac there, wherever. Yep. And we had Slady in the room. There was yourself. Yes. I think Maraid might have been there. I'm not too sure. Or maybe she No, nah, probably not. I think it was, it was JML's engineering meeting, engineering leadership meeting. Right. And in Hall of in, uh, in, in the um, Hall of Justice, uh, right? Not Hall of Justice. Um, not Hall of Justice. Um, um, Avengers. Avengers. When was the last time you were in Avengers? A long, long time ago. A long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you've been working from home full time since March, right? Yeah. Although, although actually, for me, I've been work from anywhere for three and a half years. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. But it wasn't the, the shift. The hard bit of the shift for me was missing the work element, like missing the in-person work element, because being on the road a lot, having that one day or two days a week in the office of like connective tissue, that I didn't, I didn't realize how valuable that was. And going five days work from home is not is not a great mix for me. <laughs> No, not a great mix for me either, mate. No. I was I was the one that was coming into the office during lockdown. I was like, oh, it was basically an extension of my my house, I guess, because I was the yeah. only one that was coming in. Um, <laughs> but I could turn up the music and I could get some work done without. I said, just crank it out. Just yeah. All right. So so back in late 2014, when we first crossed paths, we're at JML's engineering meeting, and that was before JML had gone to Shopify. Yes. And we were talking about. All things, like I remember talking about OKRs, yeah. which was the objective key result framework that we were using at Twitter that I think Atlassian was looking at for the first time. Yeah, we've, we've been flirting with for a while. Flirting with for a while. So what was Atlassian using at the time? What was VTFM? So we had, there was two things we had at the time. VTFM, which was vision, focus areas, themes and measures, which was our way of communicating our strategy, our rolling 12-month strategy. But then off the back of that, we had what I would call like old school uh, KPIs, right? We'd, we'd pick goals, right? We, we'd, we'd picked ways of measuring those goals, but very KPI focused and, and very kind of red, amber, green scoring focused. And it wasn't, when we were small, it kind of worked okay. It didn't scale particularly well because it became punitive. So if you were green and you hit your score, you got ignored because you were always meant to. And if you were, you were amber or red and, and you missed by anything, you got punished, right? It's like, like ex, you know, please explain. You got the invite to the headmaster's office. And so we wanted a way of getting stretched into there and also being more outcome focused. Because I think when KPIs, when we scaled KPIs, we got very output focused. Like, what did you do this week? What's the thing that you shipped? And actually the thing that we forgot about, and I think it was by accident, it wasn't bad intent, but we forgot about what's the outcome or impact we're trying to have on the customer that happens after the event and so okrs were a way of putting stretch in there and, and building the idea of, of moonshots and, and sort of big ambition but then also refocusing us on what is the impact we're trying to have on the end customer not just what's happening in the sausage factory with that end customer perspective though did you get that with the vtfm no so actually the first year we rolled out okrs that was part of the problem 
So we, we, we had the VTFM because that stayed, right? We, that was like the sacred cow for the first year. That stayed. And we just had OKRs underneath. And so you're and like, then you, could, you mesh yeah, them together. Like, well, which ones do we report? The measures in the VTFM? Because that's our Alaskan level plan. Or, or the OKRs, which are the things we're actually doing in the impact we're trying to have. And you're like, well, both. And you're like, well, they don't meet. Right? There's, no, there's no cascade up or down, left or right, that, that had them aligned properly. And so the year after, we actually phrased, we, we got rid of the VTFM. And we now have our rolling 12-month strategy phrased as OKRs. Right, okay. At that time, Dom, back in 2014 when you were you know, flirting with OKRs, as you said, was the VTFM that you were kind of working to replace, was that company, department, team, individual, or did it just stop at the team? Yeah, that, and that's, that's where it didn't really scale, right? We, the, the, the organizational one made sense. And again, when you're smaller, it's a lot easier to draw the linkage mm. between your team or your department and the company one. As we scaled, what happened was we'd have a company-level VTFM, and then each department would go and build its own. Mm. The weird thing is, and, and, and again, this, this works for a phase, and then you realize it doesn't, is we don't create value up and down the org. We create value across the organization. And so building these VTFMs in departments was honing our craft, mm. but it was doing it at the detriment of how you work across teams. Yeah. And, and again, it's one of those things that at the time we didn't realize, like if I had a crystal ball, it would have been great, but it seemed like the right thing to do. Engineering had a VTFM, so did design, so did product management. And you're like, you know, we only ship what experience, right? <laughs> and so I don't care if, if engineering's perfect and design's not, because that's, that's let the customer down, because it's one experience that we shipped. And so there was this whole sort of arbitration where we'd build them vertically and then try and glue them together horizontally, but they'd all been built in isolation. And, and then when it comes to trade-offs, and every business has trade-offs, whether you, whether you admit it or not, when you're like, the best laid plans literally stay on paper. Well, that's where they exist. Then, then reality kicks in one day after you've built the plan. And when reality kicks in, what trade-off are you going to make? Are you going to do the trade-off that delights the customer that maybe compromises you? Right? And then how do you do that internally? Are you going to help design and product management and load balance that way? Or say, well, yeah, I'm in engineering. We're fine. It's design's fault. We did our bit, but it's design's fault. And so we quickly realized that vertical model brought about some uh, unintended consequences and some odd behaviors that weren't really the kind of behaviors we wanted as Atlassian. Back, back in that time, Dom, in 2014, 2015, did you have the triad then with the product design and eng leader for each of those groups? Um, in physical people, yes. In, but in behaviors and modeling, no. No, okay. And so, how did how did that come to fruition? To that triad where they were working as one in in you know in harmony to deliver that customer experience. I think essentially it's one of those brilliant mistakes when when you look back. I mean, we, we we're really good at reflecting, and, and you do a few reflections, and you suddenly see the pattern. You're like, hey, our teams that are nailing it are the ones where we've got cognitive diversity and a balance of skill sets. <laughs> not, not where we've got one expert or one amazing anything, but actually you're like, yeah. If you look that, at some of these way. patterns. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. hey, I just saw those, yeah, that, that designer get the product manager in a headlock and have a violent you know, argument at a whiteboard. You're like, I actually like that. that that's what I like. The, the meeting where there's consensus and violent agreement, maybe that's the wrong signal, right? That the right signal is this cognitive diversity, this respectful dissent, and you see that. And we're like, hang on, we, we had the realization that you know, engineers build great usable products and, and product managers are, are thinking about you know, the whole sort of usability and, and, and along with the designers and, and viability. You're like, oh, oh, we need all three. Like, all, all three of those need to be apparent 
for a great experience. You're like, cool, let, let's let's double down on that, right? And so we started to hone in a lot more on how do we get the balance across those? How do we understand the different roles? Because we didn't, we didn't want them to become homogenous. You don't want those three roles to get on so well they all agree. Mm-hmm. You also don't want them to violently disagree all the time, right? So a little bit of disagree and commit, great. If they're always in disagreement, then then that comes out in the product. And so how do you find the things that they stand for and how they bring their true and best selves to each phase, right? If you think about any given product or project, there are natural phases where those skill sets are more honed, right? In the, mm-hmm. in the early phases for us, product managers and designers are, are often a lot better with the ambiguous uh, and, and, and a whole lot of stuff. But when it comes to building, I'm probably going to listen to the engineer more, right? And, and it's, you're it's handing not it over to delivery. Time. Yeah, but then also it's like, well, it's not the, the it, like if you think about delivery time, I think we'd sometimes think of it as the relay race. And I think that's incorrect because everyone's still going to say in a relay race, once I've run my, my lap, I'm done, right? But in product development, it's not because when I hand over the baton, I still have a role. So even if it's in build phase, the product manager and the designer still have a massive role. It's just that they're co-pilots and the engineer is the pilot, right? You, you don't disappear, your role changes. And I think that was one of the nuances that we got as we started to, to bring in uh, the right skills, the right level of leadership, the right level of reflection to go, how do we balance this across those phases? And how do we be explicit on what role we're playing in those different phases? Okay, that's interesting. I'm going to want to come back to that when we turn our attention to the, the customers and the ad, agile transformation landscape more broadly. Um, but one thing that it got me thinking about with respect to this balance is the fact that, that Atlassian had the discipline to hire for a triad, right? So if mm. I think about, if I think about, I think this was around 2013 at Twitter and in one of our groups, we had pick a number, but there would have been 200 people and there would have been less than 10 product managers. I think we actually had a ratio of like 20, it was something silly, like 26 engineers to a product manager. And there wasn't even a design counterpart necessarily for each of the product managers. And so the balance was way off mm. and, and it wasn't very effective. And, you know, was there a, a time at Atlassian where there was this reflection? Because I'm just trying to think, like in my time at Atlassian, I, I don't think we had a maybe a great balance. I think there was a, a much heavier in engineering than there was in, in design and product. Yeah, it's one of those things that if it's not there, you don't miss it, right? So it's weird, right? So, so I mean, I, it was a lot of it was before my time, but when I listened to the stories, like even design as a discipline when I started in 2013 was a very small discipline. Yeah. And, and I think even then it was it was kind of like a, a hat tip. It was notion of like, oh yeah, we've got some designers. They do the they do the pixels, right? They they make stuff look pretty. And and, and they do t shirts and they do like yeah, they do and banners and, and, and yeah, maybe yeah. keynote slides, who knows, right? But um they make stuff look pretty, right? And they drink craft beer and they sit on milk crates. And so we, we had this archetype of a designer, and then you're like, Oh, actually, once you start to understand user experience, the integration points, design languages, design standards, and the experience. Uh, once you once you get your first few designers who say, here's how our products fit together, and this is the experience from a customer lens, you're like, oh, I'm not sure I'm a fan of that. Like, it wasn't it wasn't badly designed, but nor was it particularly well designed. And once you start to make some improvements there and you start to measure customer satisfaction and you, you make that experience more seamless, you suddenly see the value. So I think I think you know, for last year, I think we started as, a, as an engineering company. Um, we added product management and then begrudgingly added added sort of design. Interestingly, in, in my in my time there, the, the most recent thing we've added is research. Mm, yeah, okay. Kind of fascinating, fascinating um, evolution for us again to go, what do you mean research? I'm a product manager. I know everything about the industry and the section, the competition. They're like, but do you know everything about the customer? 
and, and the job to be done or the top tasks or how they experience it and, and thinking about things like accessibility, thinking about how our products integrate with other, other products, thinking about not just from a competitive landscape, but what's the actual job to be done and what are the ways people are trying to do that and the drop-off points. And so research has become a new muscle that we had the exact same experience with. First time you roll it out, people are like, oh, we don't need that. It's overkill. And you're like, oh, actually, it's really quite good. Hard to integrate because you're giving me findings I wasn't expecting. And then there was a shift both for designers, but also for the product managers to go, oh, I can use you as a resource now because you're this like independent group that can un- help me understand not just my product and iterating on my products, but a level up. What's the thing that my product's trying to do, whom I competed with, and what does that experience look like end-to-end? It's a completely different lens. But basically what you're describing there, Dom, is you've still got the triad of the product design and eng leads, but now you've got this, it's a centralized kind of research team. Yeah. And do they drop in for particular projects in different areas? Yeah. yeah so if you, if you think about it, if you, if you strip it back to like plain common sense, I think over time we got really good at kind of explore and build. But, but maybe we lost a little bit of the muscle around wonder. And so Ooh, okay. these researchers are great. That like the blinkers are out and they wonder, right? They, I, I'm sure they physically do this as well, but mentally they stroll, right? They, 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 they go quite broad. And when they, when they come back with their insights, you're like, wow, that's, that's giving me a really good broad perspective. So I'll, I'll give you a quick example. We're, we're working a lot, yeah, and we always are, on, on accessibility. Mm. And it's easy to look at your current products and start adding stuff in. Right, that, that's the logical way of doing it. Or you look at your competitor's product. You know, how do you how do you become a pair or a peer? Easy. What our research team did was they actually got a whole lot of people with different uh, sight and mobility issues and said, we're going to now get you to use our products and go through some key tasks. And they're already users, but it's like maybe they're on a screen reader or maybe they can't use a mouse. They can only use keyboard shortcuts. And you suddenly see the experience through their lens and we record it and it's tracking eyesight and line of sight. You're seeing all the actions. Like you've got this level of detail there where you're like, wow, I know we're trying to build empathy, but actually seeing that experience firsthand is completely different than trying to think about it. Mm. And so you're like, you're just seeing it through the lens of this person. So the research team did weeks and weeks and weeks of research with different users, different backgrounds, different disabilities, different products and different tasks to give all of our teams this sense of what is it like as the actual person like here, here you can actually walk in that person's shoes or it feels like you are and if you're a product manager and a designer and you're because it sounds to me dom like that's that sort of investigation or exploration that you're describing there with respect to you know um, mobility impaired or sight impaired people mm. that's something that it might be hard for me to bring that into my okrs for a product yeah. and so yeah. for that triad like how, how do i have like I'm trying to push forward and chase down monthly active users or crossflow or whatever it happens to be. And that's much more long running. It's like it's a long running thread that's just going to stay open for 18 months while we think about this stuff and have these conversations. And so does that research group, do they actually have their own OKRs? And are those OKRs yeah. annually? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've we, so yes and no. So we do most, most of the OKRs across sort of design, research. Uh, we now have like a ways of working team. Um, they, they, they tend to be sort of shared OKRs or, or more cross-functional. I prefer, I prefer cross-functional to shared. The cross-functional as in we have the same um, objective but different key results. Yeah, okay. Right. So if you think about accessibility as an objective, the research team, their key result is about having the latest, greatest research and insights so that we can learn and understand. You're like, cool, 
that, that's your task, right? The design team, your, 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 your KR is to take that insight and turn it into some designs, usabilities, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and then you can actually go along the value chain and each different person in that value chain has a different KR. Okay. And still today though, like there's no OKRs at an individual level, right? It's all team we have, group. We have, we have odds. We have odds and sods. Um, I've, I've dabbled with it a little bit. Um, um, sometimes I think I, I've always got individual OKRs. The question is whether I share them or not. I, I think, and I think if you think okay. about the majority of knowledge workers, they will have individual goals. Mm -hmm. I want to learn a new skill. I want to acquire a new craft. Yeah, right. Um, whether you write that down and it, and it, and it benefits you or not is, is something that's up, up for debate. Um, when it came to writing them down in a collective, having a single storage of them, any kind of laddering, I think the cost of that is higher than the benefit. Mm, right. So, okay. so we strayed away from saying everyone that must have individual OKRs and they ladder or whatever, because it, it ends up getting like very, very cumbersome and, and actually very command and control. What, what we've done instead is, is really say to our, our leaders, and this is leadership by, uh, by capability, not by title, but saying to our leaders, this is part of a conversation you should be having on a regular basis with your people mm. around growth and how you're inspiring them and how you're motivating them. How are they developing and evolving? What are the experiments they're running on themselves, right? How are they with other people? Uh, what are their challenges and how can you help them never get those challenges? What are their points of amplification that you should be calling out with them to turn that turn the dial on those, right? What are what are their superpowers that we should be really sort of uh, encompassing, right, and, and nailing? And so that's part of a leadership conversation. Does that need to be written down and centralized? Nah, and there's no benefit. Like it, to, to me, it, it becomes a, 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 a zero benefit to, to documenting that. It's interesting hearing you describe that. You know, that's very much learning and development focused. Like it's um, if I think back to Andy Grove's high output management. Mm. My my understanding of that at an individual, like of OKRs at an individual level, was always with respect to your customers. You know, yeah. what am I going to do for my customers? But you've you've actually framed it. What am I going to do for myself? That's going to allow me to be a better in better service to my customers. Maybe next financial year. Yeah, so it's a sequence. So, it's, uh, so the um, I, I, I'm guessing this is shared by Atlassian, but this is definitely my view of the world, and I've shared this with enough people now where they, they understand. You can't be a great teammate if you're not turning up your true best self. Mm, right? So you've, yep. got to take this, you've got to take this step back, right? There's, there's this whole weird narrative around the humility of being a teammate where you're like, I'm a martyr and I'll take one for the team. And it, it's BS. Because if, if you're not in the right zone for that team activity, you're not giving your best, right? You're actually the anchor that brings the team down. So you, you step back from that and you say, well, how do you be the best? Because not all work is teamwork. There's a lot of deep work and, and individual tasks and stuff that needs to be done. So you're like, right, I need to be the best version of me. Well, what does that mean? Like, it means that before any meeting, I need to have done my tasks. Or before any meeting, I need to have done my uh, pre-reading. Right? If we're meeting as a team and we have this, ace, this, this synchronous activity, what are the things I need to do to be best prepared for that synchronous activity to deliver the most value? So how can I get the most out of that teamwork? How do I turn up and be present? How do I turn up with respectful dissent and challenge? Right, and provocation. And so that requires me first to be an individual, right? And, and I think one of the dangers in, in a lot of work environments right now, if people have lost the understanding of what it is to be an individual, what your key leadership style, your learning style, how do you turn up, right? How do you critique? How do you take feedback? All these things that make you you, you need to know those and be aware of them before you can be great in a team environment.
So it's not just the tasks, like you, you need to know you. And so if, if you're a great individual and you've honed that, you can then be a great teammate. And if you're a great teammate, you can deliver great outcomes for your customers. Anything else is an accident, right? And we've all been in accidental teams, which have delighted a customer. And we sat there and gone, really not sure what I did. To, <laughs> I mean, I'll take it. I'll take the pat on the back. I'll take the kudos and the bottle of wine and the congratulations. Not really sure I amplified. I, I don't know. And I'm like, if you don't know, you probably didn't. Right, that's not humility. That, that you're probably just a passenger, and, and and I think the danger in growth environments is there's lots of passengers who they're a passenger to lots of success, and after a while they're like, I'm amazing, and you're like, you're not. You've just been in the right place at the right time repeatedly. I got to process that. And let me give you an example, right? So I um, a couple of years ago, uh, I was in New York uh, with a mate of mine, uh, Sophie. She's a, she's sort of unofficially mentored me and helped me a lot of the years, right? And I'm talking to her about trying to scale me. And I was, I was really angry about some stuff. And thankfully, she, it was late afternoon in New York. She bought me a Pinot Noir. We smashed a drink and we chatted away. And she's one of those people that just calls BS on you, right? So I'm like, whinge, 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 whinge. And she's like, oh, cool. She's English as well. She's like, so I'm guessing you're just going to whinge about it and I hope it goes away. I'm like, all right, fair point. <laughs> a little bit of my English came out. I actually hoped that maybe if I did whinge long enough, it would actually dismiss. She's like, that never happens, does it? So what are you going to do about it? And so she, we, we chatted away and she gave me this challenge. And she's like, you're not evolving. She's like, you're adding stuff in, but you're full. She's like, cognitively dumb, you're full. And, and my challenge was I was reading all these business books at the time and I knew lots of stuff, but I didn't feel any smarter. Like I wasn't doing anything with it. And it's creating this like frustration spiral. So she gave me the exercise and you've probably seen this, the four L's. So she got a bit of paper and she's like, right, write the four L's down. Reflect on you as a leader. This is selfishly, purely about you as a leader. Last 90 days, what have you loved? What have you done mm, personally that you've loved? Love, I'm like, right. oh, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And she's like, not like, because we're not doing likes here, right? We're not being soft. Loved and own it. Actually, superpower, do more of it. So we did that. It was very uncomfortable, a few sips of wine. And then she's like, what's your loathed and what's your longed for? And I had lots of longed fors, long list of those, uh, but no loathed. And she's like, right, here's the problem. The, the long for you're sprinkling in in the 25th hour of every day. No wonder you're not doing well at it because you're never giving it the you're not giving yourself any space or time or freedom to actually experiment. So you're not you're not growing. You're not getting better. You're just adding stuff stuff in. I'm like fair point. So we went through, found some loath. She's like, right, you've got to remove those. Who are you going to tell those habits or rituals or whatever? Who are you going to tell that you're removing those because they need to hold you accountable because they'll slip back in really easily. So I found someone, ping them. She's like, right, the long four. She's like, I need to let you know that when you add them in, you're going to be crap at them. And I was like, I don't want to be rubbish at anything. I'm a leader. I need to be a superhero. I need a cape and, and I need to fly in and everything needs to be perfect first time. She's like, nope. If you add the first time you add in a long four, the chances are you'll be rubbish at it. So find someone who has that muscle and let them help you practice it. And, and you'll get better at it over time. And then the fourth L was, what have you learned? Like what, what experiment did you run yourself last quarter? What did you learn about yourself? And she's like, right, go and tell as many people as you can. That'll build a peer-to-peer -peer, learning and networking environment for you. So I, I, I did it, and then I did it again 90 days later. And, and I mean, there was a few times when the power of rationalization kicked in, and I just BS'd myself because it's really easy to do. And then other times where I got really deep and, and analyzed on it, and, and it's enabled me every 90 days to evolve, right? Now, the, the moral of the story, and, and this, is, this is where we tie individual to team, the number of leaders I know in biz, big businesses driving transformations, but they're not changing themselves. Mm. And what behavior are they role modeling? They're, they're mm. role modeling the behavior of I'm fine, you're not, you all need to change. They're role Which modeling is, status quo. Yeah. Yeah.
That's interesting. So I've certainly heard of the love versus loathed mm. exercise. I like that you or that Sophie um, extended it to longed for and learned. I think mm. that's really beautiful and I'll take that. With the loathed, loathed in particular, were there things on that list that you had to delegate or you had to hire someone to do? Because there's often like there's things that I think about that I loathe with respect to the business and typically they're things about like orchestrating, you know, paying suppliers or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And so we, you know, how do I address that? I bring the bookkeeper into the business that, yeah. you know. So, so the, uh, the, the little game that we played is you're not allowed to outsource it until you drop it. Right. So the, the idea is, you know, you've got to find a way of dropping it first because maybe it doesn't need to exist. Right. And, well, and you'll okay. remember, right. You, Cause you've worked at big companies and you walk around a big company and you're like that person there, they only exist to do a task mm. that someone probably could have automated or got rid of, but they didn't have the time for it, So they put a warm body in the way. And then you had another warm body, another warm body. And you suddenly realize you've got thousands of warm bodies keeping this deck of cards stacked together. And if one card falls, the entire thing comes tumbling down. So, so I, I removed stuff that I was really uncomfortable removing. So I was like, this is so important. And it wasn't. My, my blinkers were just off. Right. And then, and then she's like, well, stop doing so Like, it's not life or death. She's like, no offense, Tom, but you're not a surgeon. So, so stop doing something and listen and see what happens when you stop doing it. And I'm like, oh, no, but these are really important. People will be angry. I'm a very important person. And you remove something and no one bloody notices. And you're like, <laughs> why, <have I> <laughs> why doing was I that? doing it yeah. one of the big examples for me was meetings and, it, and this wasn't a delegate or, or automate this was me just being a control freak and turning up in meetings where, where I wanted to be there just in case and so we went to like we looked at my condo it was just this sea, I used Gmail right this sea of blue of all these meetings double booked triple booked and she's like right so imagine you've got to set yourself a goal of getting rid of 15 hours and I'm like what I mean, it'd be easy to create a time machine that adds 15 hours to a week. I can't remove 15 hours of meetings. I'm a very, very important person. And then and then we played this game called Boomerang or Stick. So I declined every single meeting, and I sent a note saying this is either a boomerang, in which case it comes back, or if it's a stick. When you throw a stick, it doesn't come back. And the boomerangs, I want to know what the purpose of the meeting is, what my role is in the meeting, and what you're going to hold me accountable for. So two-thirds of the meetings didn't come back. Right, and the ones that did, I honestly admit to you, I was playing the exact wrong role in virtually all of them. And it was funny because I'd get these emails back and they're like, so one of them, this, this meeting I was in, they were like, your role is the decision maker. And I, I, in the next meeting, I was like, I need to apologize. I thought I was the, the, the protagonist. I've, I've been, every time they were suggesting something, I'm like, well, you could do that. Or oh. these three things. And they're like, so I was sending them into a complete spiral. And they were like, you're a terrible decision maker. I'm like, no, I'm a good decision maker when I know that's my job. Because this isn't, this isn't your title. Oh, your dumb. title stays the same, right? Your title stays the same, but your role's different in every, every environment, every engagement, your role's different. And we don't call it out. We just assume. And so once we clarified those assumptions and realized I'd, I'd got them all wrong, the meetings I was in, I was way more effective in, two-thirds of them didn't come back. They, did, they just didn't need, either the meeting didn't need to exist or it didn't need me in there. And if you think about it, and me and you know this, our most precious resource is our time. Yeah. So why are we giving it away for, for free or for negative cost, right? So I'm like, now I'm, I'm drawing all that stuff back. Liz and I have been having this conversation for a while now about, like, statistically speaking, I've probably got 50 years left on earth based on how long a, a, a Caucasian Australian male lives. Yeah. And, uh, and, but I've probably only got 40 good, you know, usable years yeah. left. Because then, you know, you kind of like, 
atrophy yeah. and all that. And so, it still starts to break. Yeah, so Liz and I have been going, well, if we've only got 40 summers left, what are we going to do with 40 summers? And it's a really good, you know, like it's a really good exercise to think real quick, what do you want to be spending yeah. your time on? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's the same thing. You can do that at, at a, like a, a meta macro level for life. And I think you can do it on a you know, annual quarterly basis mm. with, with work. There's so many things that we just presume we need to do. And, and, and both the four L's and just my attitude has enabled me to challenge those and go, no, I, I just say why an awful lot right now. So it's like, I'd, I'd like you to come to this meeting. I'm like, oh, cool. Why? And like, I don't know. I just, I'd like you there. And I'm like, but why? Because if you can't explain to me what you want me to do, then you probably don't leave me there. Five and actually, wise, by the right? Way, Five wise. Yeah, but, but, but also the reason I'm often asking them why is I'm like, you do know I'm a pain in the ass when I do come to the meeting. So just, I want to double check to you, you really want me there. Because if you've converged on an idea and you want to ship it, don't invite me. I'm the wrong person. <laughs> and so just, just challenging, challenging on that and getting that time back and then using it for things that are way more valuable. So I, I rebounce my portfolio just like a, a financial advisor or a market trader rebalances a financial portfolio every quarter, I do the same thing with me. Uh, and if I don't, then what I'm what I'm saying is when I don't do that, I'm saying the version of me last quarter is more than good enough for the, for the next quarter. No, it's right? never so the case, what, is what it? I'm saying is, yeah, I'm saying the world's not changed. The world stayed flat, right? And everything's going on a flat line. And that's not the case. So if I'm not evolving myself at the same pace as, as Atlassian or our customers, then I've become the anchor by default. I'm the anchor that slows us down. Tell me what what portion of your time today are you spending with customers? Because I know over the years in our conversations, I think about uh, a lunch we had at Pendolino, uh, you, Dave, and I, um, probably two and a half, three years ago now, but we were talking a lot about agile transformations at at the large end of the spectrum. Um, How much time are you spending with customers today and, and what are those conversations like? Yeah, I'm probably probably over the 50, 60% mark right now, uh, but mainly a rebalance again. So, you know, when COVID hit, the, the conference scene disappeared. Um, and so I'm like, cool, I get to reinvest that time. Um, I could reinvest it internally at Atlassian, and I, and I did do it. We're, we're evolving our ways of working internally and, and driving some change there. So I got involved in that, made sense. But I was like, hey, our customers are struggling. Um, and, and first of all, we need to understand how and why they're struggling. And then if we can help them, find a way of helping them. It's funny how the conversation really changed from quite tactical, you know, 18-month plans and, and, and presumed levels of certainty to going, hey, the world's changed, like the table flip moments just, just happened. Our business model's been challenged. Uh, our employees are challenged. We're having these conversations about people and wellness. And actually, like we've said for years, we care about our people, but now we actually have to. What does that mean? Mm. Uh, and a whole lot of leaders sort of trying to understand the shift from peacetime to wartime, wartime. peacetime. And I think that it's funny, the, the transition from peace to wartime, I think that the shared burning platform, the shared sense of urgency, I think a lot of leaders transitioned that okay. I, I wouldn't say they're amazing, but they weren't awful, given that most leaders certainly in Australia haven't managed through through wartime, right? We've, we've had an amazing economic success for a long time. The harder bit, the way more complex bit, is going from war to new peace, because new peace doesn't look the same as old peace. Right, and it's a very different mindset to go. Who, who you is, know, the great thing about managing in wartime is I don't need approvals because it's it's a burning platform. We just drive change. You just do stuff. Just do it. Just do it. And new peace is different because we're like, well, how long's this going to last for? What are the principles I want to apply, and how do I build almost from a blank piece of paper? Very different mindset. Who wrote? Was that was that Ben Horowitz with the hard thing about hard things, where he talked about war versus peacetime leaders? I've, I've read it in a few things. The most recent one I read it in was, 
uh, General Stanley McChrystal, who wrote Team of Teams. Okay, he yeah. did one on, on, on demystifying leaders and, and how we've often put the wrong leaders on a pedestal. And there's some great leaders out there that just didn't get the credit because they were way more balanced. But um, yeah, there's a few different narratives out there on it. With the leaders that you're meeting with, well, one, are they, are they using something like the four L's that Sophie shared with you? Yeah, that's become a lot more popular. I mean, certainly with C-suite and the level down, even board members, actually, when I, when I share that, there's this kind of moment of reflection of going, yeah. Like, and it's because I get them with the irony of going, question one, are you driving a transformation? They're like, yes. And you're like, cool. Are you transforming yourself? Yeah. No. And by the way, reading a Harvard Business Review article on, on Agile doesn't mean you're evolving yourself. That means you're educating yourself. That's subtly different. We've all read that article. It doesn't make you an expert. So sit yourself down. Oh, and so that's the first moment of getting them bought in. And then the second one is just saying to them, like, just be honest right now, what are the things you're struggling with? And, and for a lot of leaders, it's, it's this desire, that, like they get the need for empathy, vulnerability, and authenticity. They get it because they've read it. They understand it. They comprehend it. They find it really hard to do, right? A lot of them are leading as a superhero, leading through power and control. They've led through success, but they've not led through a downturn and, and, and a challenging time. And, and they're just questioning their own ability. There's a lot of, I don't know why I even want to call it imposter syndrome. I think there's a lot of people just saying, I think my role as a leader has just changed. And I don't, I don't know that I understand the new version. And that's quite demoralizing for a lot of people. It's, it's quite challenging. The irony being is that the minute they own up to that and talk about it, they've done the empathy, vulnerability, mm. they've done the thing they're grasping for, but instead they're trying to put this, this brave face on it. So in a lot of organizations, I've seen a lot of ruinous empathy, Oh, a lot yeah. of people buffering from their team. Like, Nick, I, I don't want to tell you that bad things are happening in the company because I, I think you're already worried, so I won't tell you that without realizing that you fill in the gaps and you think way worse things than I could ever tell you. Yeah. And so we're, kind of the information flow has changed. And then for a lot of leaders, the mistake I've seen on mass is they have confused communication and broadcast, right? Communication mm -hmm. is, is what I hear and, and how I feel when you speak. Broadcast is the thing that you said. And, and because of this virtual world, there's lots of Loom and Zoom and videos. And yeah, we're going to broadcast, broadcast out, a lot. Yeah. But we're getting to listen for the response. I mean, this, this has to be a very challenging time for a number of leaders today. But, you know, 2018, uh, 2008, like there were a lot of leaders back then that probably, I presume, picked up a lot of scar tissue around GFC. You know, how many of the leaders that you're chatting with today would have picked up scar tissue through the GFC and, and, and they, they're still finding this kind of a feeling at least like it's uncharted territory? Well, and that's, that's I think, the byproduct, I was going to say problem, the byproduct of the Australian system is we dodged a bullet in 2008. Yeah. E economically, we did not get the same hit that the rest, I mean, the stock markets got a little hit and, and a whole lot of other things took a little bit of a dip, but nowhere near the the size or magnitude of, of a lot of the, other, the, the rest of the world. And, and so both, both through the mining boom, you know, the banking sector, um, a whole of other sort of uh, tertiary markets around tourism doing well at that time, you're like, that kind of, it, it, it was a blip, but it, it wasn't a scar. Mm. And so I think that's where, like, there's a lot of countries have got that recent experience to draw upon. Like, here's how we do this, right? Here's how we bunker down. Here's how we get more conservative. Here's the playbook for it. And I think a lot of countries haven't got that playbook, so they're, they're guessing at it, right? They're, they're doing it on the fly. And so I, I think there's that. Also, I think this one's just different. You know, the global financial crisis was a financial and market-caused uh, issue. 
right? This is a health pandemic caused market mm. downturn. And, and I don't think we've got a playbook for that because we don't know the longevity of it. So, so even you, if you, yeah, no, sorry, Dom, I was just going to ask, like if you cast your mind back to GFC, you know, were, were you were you anxious going through GFC? Have you been anxious this year? No, I, I wasn't anxious at all through GFC because it, it felt like, I mean, I, I did a recession in the UK uh, like a long, long time ago. And so I, I'd been through that downturn. I'd worked in companies that had had downturns, even if the general economy was fine, in industries that, that had shrunk, where each at the end of each quarter, you're like, right, we're to balance the books. Who are we letting go? What projects mm. are we stopping? Like, it, it, And it was... It was always the taking away, not the adding. And so I'd been through that. Um, the, the thing that made me anxious about, about sort of 2020 was th- this is the first time I think we've had this level of uncertainty. And it's funny because a lot of people talk about change fatigue. I actually think humans are quite good at change. I think we, we, we actually do that quite well. But uncertainty we are terrible with. Mm-hmm. And it's weird how when we get uncertainty, how different people respond in different ways. Some like to create a blanket of certainty and wrap it around them. Like, that. here's what I know, and this will come true. And you're like, maybe it won't. Like, I, I like your blanket. It's comfortable, but it's not necessarily real, right? It's not going to shelter you from the things that we genuinely don't know about. And so this is where agility has become key or nimbleness has become key. Because if I look at the leaders and the companies that are listening, they're actually like attentive to their customers and listening. They're the ones that are evolving really quickly. Because they've got, not only have they got the nimbleness as the muscle, but they're listening to course correct. The ones that have, think they've rolled out agility in the last few years, but never added the customer bit, they've got small, fast, nimble teams just running around in circles. And they're not heading in a particular direction. Yeah. Yeah, they are are clueless, right? Because without that that overarching, like, why are we doing this? And, And that customer that we care for, we still care for, how's that customer's world changed? Right, if, if, if that customer's changed, how can we change with them? A lot of a lot of companies haven't done that yet, and and I, I think it's some are holding their breath and hoping for the best. Um, some are just too fixated on, but we have a plan, and and if we stick to that plan, you know, I read a book somewhere that said if you stick to a plan, you'll be fine. You're like, yeah, the, the world just shifted around you. Your plan might not be as relevant. It's making me think, Dom, about the um, the Salesforce transformation, agile transformation in two thousand and six, and that was. That was one of the, the big bang, I think it was one of the early big bang agile transformations that took place. And I, I don't know if it was Parker Harris or, or, or how it actually played out, but the leaders of, of Salesforce basically said, um, you know, you're going to change to agile, you're going to give this thing a go. Um, otherwise, like, you know, all is lost. And there's been yeah. other examples. I think, you know, shortly after LinkedIn did their IPO, they, called, they pulled the and on cord, they stopped everything to yeah. re, rework how they work and, and um, you know, is 2020 one of those years? Like are the, are the best companies going to take advantage of this as an opportunity to retool how they work? And then the other companies are just going to kind of atrophy and, and slowly yeah. decline over the next five? I, th- I think the, the, the best ones probably built some of the muscle already. Um, the ones that are now reacting, right? So, so I think if you're aware of the market, I mean, all, all COVID's done is pour accelerant on the stuff that was changing anyway, right? So, so yes, it's not ideal, but it, it's it's stuff that was happening regardless, right? We've we we just I think we we only had five or ten years to equip ourselves, and we got given three months instead. So I think a whole lot of companies that saw those patterns emerging, changing people, habits, technology, practices, ways of working, customer demands, experience demands, you glue all those together. That's why agile transformation has been a massive hit for the last three, four, five years, right? 
So the ones that were prepared for that, awesome. The ones that responded quickly, that were like, brilliant, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste, what can we do? They'll do well. The ones that have dug their heels in and are being stubborn, saying the world will return to normal, normal. and it's just a matter of time, they're, they're the ones that I fear for because that, that atrophy that may have been a slow decline, I think that becomes a cliff. Mm. Right? Because in, in a slow decline and then they just fall off the edge at yeah, some point. Fall, right? Consumerist yeah. world, consumer spending goes down, sentiment goes down, and, and relevance suddenly becomes really important. Like, is your product relevant to your customers? And, and the, the people that understand that and then have agility in how they deliver it, that's a winning combination. I think the, the interesting, I was talking to a friend about this on the weekend because they were like, what's the difference between the successful ones and the not successful ones? And it's, it's hard to pinpoint a single reason, but the one that stands out for me is the agile transformations that have been people-centric are the best. So a whole load of them were tool-centric or process-centric. I will send all my people on a training course. I'm going to make yeah. you agile. Yeah. I'm going to give you some agile tools. Go. And you're like, did you change their mindset? Did you change their heart? Did you change the things that they're recognized for, their intrinsic motivations? Did you change those things? Because if you didn't, their, their inner workings are still the same, right? You've just given them some new terminology. I think that's a really, a really, really good point. I go back to, if I cast my mind back to the first Agile conference that I went to over a decade ago, the conversation back then was very much around training the practices, teaching the practices yeah. to your people. And then it kind of evolved into a tooling conversation. But again, mm. teaching the practices and software are just tools. And yeah. it was probably 2013, 2014, I guess, when um, the modern agile movement came out and they were talking a lot about psychological safety. Go back yes. to where we started the conversation, right? Psychological yeah. safety, bring your whole self to work and that will free you and enable you to, to do something tremendous for your customers. You know, mm -hmm. like, give, give me a sense of the customer conversations that you've had throughout 2020. How many, what percentage do you think have psychological safety? Like, um, truly so, so, have that psychological safety? Yeah, so, so, so it's... I have to remind myself that psychological safety isn't a naught or a one, right? It's a, it's a sliding scale. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would say it's it's improved um, where it's done with authenticity. So so the danger is it becomes a topic where people are like, ah, oh, um, everyone's working from home. There's an increased chance of stress. There's a whole lot of change. Things are going wrong. Oh, I know what. Let's just talk about psychological safety a lot. And you're like, that's not it. You know, there's, there's no correlation between talking about it and doing it. Um, and so, and so it becomes the, the, the sort of the, the topic, right? The fashion, right? Just like wellness and mindfulness have become fashionable to talk about. doesn't mean we've got any better at it. And so, but isn't that, that the thing, Dom, like agile was the fashionable thing to talk yeah. about. And so we talked about it, but nothing really changed in a lot of these organizations. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not dissimilar with psychological safety. What has happened though, is over time, the, the leaders that are truly authentic, vulnerable, build that, that environment where you can bring your best self and, and they appreciate the respectful dissent, but they will still, at the right time, disagree and commit. They're like, Nick, I heard your view. Thank you for sharing. I own the decision at this point and we're going down path A. I know that you want path B. We're going down path A. When we leave this room, we commit to A. Right? I hear you. You want B when we're committing to A. And here's the signals we will assess to make sure it's the right path. If it's not, we'll course correct. So, so those people are thriving in this environment and more people want to work with them. And so what this environment has done is it's shone a massive light on the difference between managers and leaders. Managers manage process and they like control, right? Leaders are about influence and people. Do you, and do you think, so the fact that people are working remote and working from home, that's made it easier to see 
who the leaders are. Yeah, and it's, it's the managers like, are just trying to like count time. Yeah, count time, but they're also like thrashing around busy work because they're like, I'm a manager. I need to show that I'm doing something. Like I would manage tasks in around the office and and, and walk around making people, sure people are doing stuff. If, if we're autonomous and they just do it, then what, what's my role? So you suddenly start to see this busyness, this, this, this noise comes out of them, which isn't here's an outcome I achieved or here's how the team's doing on team cohesion or bonding. They're not talking about, about big meta-level things. They're sharing these transactions with you and you're like, I assumed you were always doing the transactions. Now you're showing me them all. It's a bit weird, mm-hmm. right? So it's, and it's just a behavior, right? It's, it's, you know, we must have a process for that. Well, what, what's the process? And you're like, actually, what about the process of common sense? Right? So if you think about pre-COVID, most organizations that would allow people to work from home once or twice a week had a giant process and policy about how you apply to work from home that one day a week and everything. And then suddenly they're like, well, actually, we can't do that. Everyone's going to go and work from home. But, but now things have settled down a bit. The, the, the process police and the, and the policy police are coming back again going, but what, what about, what about, what, what if, you know, I, I mean, we pay Nick to do 40 hours a week. And, and what if he didn't do 40 hours, hours a week? Like, who cares? Like Nick delivered his outcomes and his customers were over the moon. As long as he's not doing 80 hours and he's not burning out, it doesn't kind of matter, right? The, 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 the idea of nine to five, Monday to Friday as a construct is being challenged. The, the idea of you needing to sit at a physical desk for eight hours a day to do your work when actually at least half of your tasks you can do asynchronously, that's been challenged. But for the managers who want, want to manage process and control, they're like, but if Nick can work from anywhere and we trust him to do the right work, what do I do? I'm his manager. And you're like, you could inspire him. You could coach him, mentor him. You can lead him. You can help him grow. You can do a whole lot of stuff. Just don't manage his tasks for him. He's quite capable of managing a to-do list. And so it's challenging that construct again. And it's it, for a lot of people, that's uncomfortable because that's a construct that we've just stuck with for years. This is going to lead to a lot of change. I guess I've been thinking with respect to remote DOM, I've been thinking much more about the mechanics of remote work and logistics around pay scales and geographic location and pay and all this sort of stuff. But you, you're really opening my eyes to a whole different aspect. You know, there's a, there are in, in many large organizations, there are a lot of middle managers. And if these roles are no longer valuable, what do all these people do? How do we help them find something that they love and that they long for because presumably yeah. they've not been longing for, you know, yeah, that's the thing. If you look management. At, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're probably not deeply entrenched in that as being something they're passionate about, yeah. right? It's just that they found themselves in, the, in this role. And, and this is the interesting thing. So if you look at reskilling, I've been looking at reskilling for a few years as a, as a trend, right? How do we look at the rate of change in both technology, people practices, whatever else, that, that means that we're all going to have to reskill, right? The, the idea of education being up until the age of 21 and then you're working for 45 years doesn't exist, right? So lifelong learning. You look at that and you go, um, Amazon did a great example last year. So Bezos and Amazon put aside a billion dollars to yes. retrain thousand people that they were going to displace, right? There's an article that- houses, right? Yeah, yeah. so that their own automation will displace those people. Woolworths came out recently and said there's, I think it's like a 1,500 people that will be displaced because they're going for fully autonomous distribution centers. Yep. And they're like, so they're looking to retrain those people and redeploy them elsewhere. So you're like, cool, how are we doing that? So, so the, and the reason I mention it is, I think we assume it for low-skilled, high-volume tasks. So that's associated, what we've associated with technology disruption in the past. But if you think about it, there was, I think about a year and a half ago, McKinsey had a report called the frozen middle layer, 
Mm. And it was about how this frozen middle layer was going to thaw and be exposed, right? And it's these middle managers, and there's thousands of them. This is th that frozen middle layer. COVID just poured de-icer on that, <laughs> right? And it melted it, and they're all sat there going, "What me? No, no, I've only got ten years left in my career. Let me sit here, manage a few tasks. I'll take inflationary pay rise every year. I won't cause any trouble. Just can I just?" And you're like, "I, I don't know. You could retrain here. You could." Th these people haven't been engineered to think about retraining before. They've been engineered to think about comfort and conservatism and safety. And so I think we need to appreciate that they, they still have value in the workplace. I just don't think it's the old value. So for them, the four L's on steroids needs to kick in. This is really, this is going to be a huge shock to this, mm. this frozen middle layer, as McKinsey called it. You know, I think about, so we're, you know, Wollongong, Port Kembla, we're in a working class steel town. Um, and over the course of, I don't pick a number, over the course of 25, 30 years, 20,000, 22,000 people have been let go from the steelworks and they've been told to retrain. And I'm sure yeah. a portion of them do, but a lot of them that are older, like you're talking about someone that's in their 50s that's got 10 years on their yeah. career, right? Um, you know, that they, they probably just took early retirement and they found something, maybe they found something else to do in the community, they, you know, whatever it happens to be. Mm. But what are the structures that we provide for this, huge crew of people to get yeah. them reskilled in our businesses so that we don't lose the tacit knowledge and get on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, is, well, how's Atlassian thinking about this? Well, it's also about front-loading it, right? So so we, we have to hold our head in shame as a general society at how late we leave it. Mm -hmm. So when, when, when I hear stories about the like, steelworks closing down and you're like, why are we surprised by that? Like, why, why are we surprised when Holden stopped developing cars in Australia? Like, really? Like, it's, yeah. it's sad news, don't get me wrong, but like, really, are you surprised? We saw it coming. Like, you we propped, yeah, up the the we propped up the car industry in Australia for yeah. 35 years. Yeah, so you put tariffs on anyone importing to, to, to make your own industry look good, and then those tariffs go away, people make it cheaper. Unfortunately, we signed up for a global economy, right? It's a borderless business model that we're in. And whether you like that or not, it's what we've signed up for. And so the reality is, instead of reacting each time this happens, when it's normally too late, how can we respond? So how can we use these brilliant algorithms and, and data management we do to go, here are World Economic Forum future skills. Here are large employers. Here are the skill sets of our people. And you try and get that out. And you're like, these are the ones most at risk. And they're at risk over the next 18 months. Cool. Start retraining them now. Mm. Like, not when they're out of a job. When they go, well, now I'm out of a job. Now what do I do? And you're like, I don't know, Bunnings? I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> and, and, and so we've got way more data and insights than we, than we probably give ourselves credit for. Um, so I think one, one element is, is kind of front-loading it. And the next one is saying, how do, we, how do we not recreate this problem again? So if you look at the US right now, the largest employer, not by company, but by job type, is driver. Okay, yeah, by role, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah by role, right? So Uber yeah. driver, truck driver, yeah. manual drivers, people behind a wheel driving a vehicle. So where's billions of dollars worth of investment going in Google, Amazon, and, and every other, right? Autonomous vehicles. Autonomous like, vehicles, cool. get rid of all those people. So what are we doing to reskill those people? Yeah. Or, or, or even better, what are we doing in our education system to say, how do we help people coming through the education system be more resilient with their future skills? I don't like the idea of being able to future-proof people. I don't think we've got a crystal ball, so let's, let's park that. But how do we make people more resilient in their skills? What are the skills we think will be required? World Economic Forum do great research every few years and publish it. And then I look at the education system and I'm like, that was built in 1960. Like we're tuning kids out that if you talk hey, to hey, each other, hey Dom, it's okay, cheap. okay, I'm getting, I'm getting anxious at the moment. Like, like, let's end on a high note. Like, what are things <laughs> that make you optimistic 
for the next decade. 10 years time. How old are you going to be in 10 years time? Like 45 or something? 52. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to be, okay. So when you're 52, what, you know, what are you looking forward to over the next decade? What's exciting? Here's the things that we, it's a couple of things we need to realize, right? So the very first thing we need to accept is our future is not predetermined, it's not written, and it's not waiting for us, right? We, we, we design it and define it every single day with our actions and inactions. And as soon as we have that acknowledgement, we, we, we don't sit here as a victim anymore and wait for it to happen to us. We go, oh, oh yeah, no, like we actually decide on the future. Like no one else does, we, like, we collectively do. So that's the first step. You're like, oh, I've got way more say in this than I ever realized. The second one is we need to drop a whole load of stuff around productivity and GDP and all these things that we've been taught are, are great measures of success and just be happy and content in life. <laughs> like, like if you've got 40 years left, I've probably got 30 something years left. I want to enjoy those 30 years. Like I, I have no vision of, of like being buried in a gravestone somewhere with Dom was productive. That's, Dom, that's, this is this is great. We're we're gonna do what we've got to do for society over the next ten years is get society out of KPIs and into OKRs, yeah. Yeah. right? Right, and just start and, and get a balanced set of going. How like I mean, this is what I've learned from from COVID, right? I mean, you know this. I did a hundred flights last year. Mm-hmm. Now I've done. I did a few at the start of the year and a, and a trip to the UK uh, in the middle of COVID, but I've not travelled since June. Now, admittedly, the whole work from home thing, I'm going insane a little bit. But the balance of life, like sleeping in my bed every night, hanging out with friends, meaningful connections, right? Actually, community. Like, I've lived in the same apartment for three years, and it took COVID for me to meet any of my neighbors, and it took COVID for me to meet the lovely ladies in the coffee shop downstairs. And I'm like, I've lived above you for three years, and it's only now you've become a person, right? So there's so much community and society aspects we can get out of this. And the blank piece of paper, like if you imagine this is a, as a, a disruption that's happened to us and there's no choice and we can fight against it, that the options we have to actually make life better afterwards, whether it be four-day working week experiments or actually working from anywhere means that a whole other disabled or working parents can get access to the workforce. Mm. Brilliant. You get more yeah. diversity in the workforce. Like, like um, um, unemployment in the disabled community is 50% above that of the able-bodied community. Not because of any mental ability, just because it's hard for them to physically run office. Yeah, yeah. We've just changed that, right, with this crazy experiment called COVID. So if we start to tap into these these pockets of goodness, and actually we see this as an opportunity to innovate, right? And, and I hate the, the P word of pivot, but forget pivoting, to genuinely innovate. Like, what might the world look like and how can we lean into that? How do we get balance between profit and planet and people and climate and all those things? If we do that, We've got a chance to kind of build this now and build a future we want that we're actually proud of. And so I think the time is now for us to all stand up because it's not going to happen to us. It will happen to us. If we choose to do nothing, it'll happen to us. It doesn't need to. And so I'm really excited because I think we're going to make some fundamental changes and challenges to old ways of working and old ways of living, and we'll end up happier because of it. Dom, I'm super jazzed, man. Thank you. I really appreciate your time today. That's a great place to finish it up. I hope some of those things come true. <laughs> okay. So, so, so I hope some of those things come true, right? And I, I feel like the things that are in our power mm. are things that we can directly affect. Takeaways for me, I've got um, extending the love and loathe into the mm. love, loathe, long for, and um, learn. I think that's great. I also like the boomerang versus the stick. 
um, <laughs> with respect to your time and what's on the calendar and just jettison yeah. the stuff that is, well, it's, you know, it's not helping you or the teams or anyone else. Yeah. If it ends up being important, you can add it back. Sure. And the, no, I'm done. the big takeaway from this conversation for me is that the, it's in our hands. The choice, yeah. we, we make the decisions, it's in our hands. I think about, what was it Mark Twain? Whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you might as well think you can and get on with it. Yeah, and... yeah give, it, give it a red hot stab and see what happens. All right, cool. Dom, thanks so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. It was great chatting.